Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome to the first episode of the Hacked Podcast in 2018. Today we have got a great one for you. We have EJ Hilbert. He's on the line. Welcome on, EJ. How are we doing today? Doing great. Doing great. Excited to chat with you about all sorts of different topics. So the audience knows... EJ he's first exploded on the cybersecurity scene during his time at the FBI. There's actually an extensive article written on Wired.com about his time working with a black hat from Russia named Max Popov. The article shares how Popov, while chained to his desk, actually, and EJ teamed up at a place named Ant City to research other black hats breaches, and they were actually in the forefront of identity theft. Really exciting stuff. Definitely would uh, suggest anybody that's interested go in and give it a look. Now, when I spoke with EJ before, he told me that the article's only about 70% true. So I'll let him tell the rest right. of that story and you know, dive into that a little bit deeper. But since then, you know, EJ has utilized his experience at the FBI to really springboard his career into roles leading major cybersecurity programs at MySpace and uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, just to name a few. He's also formed multiple consulting firms in the space. Now he's spinning up a cybersecurity practice at Gavin DeBecker and Associates, who provide personnel security. Seems like they're moving into uh, you know, some other forms of, of security as well. And I'll, again, I'll let EJ tell all that. Today, we're going to you know, have some story time and learn a little bit more about that article and cover some of the interesting facts about that uh, and his time with the FBI, you know, what it's like being an entrepreneur and you know, crossover of physical and cybersecurity, why we should be thinking about it. So let's get things kicked off. You know, excited to you know, hop right in. Let's learn about this Wired article, you know, your time at the FBI and, and with uh, Max Popov at Ant City. You got to understand my background is eclectic, to put it mildly. I uh, started my career as a high school teacher. Wanted to be an FBI agent all the way through, but when I got out of college, they weren't hiring. After six years of teaching high school, I had the opportunity to apply to the FBI and got in, which was a significant achievement in my opinion because there's you know 80,000 people apply to the FBI every year and only about 1,000 get slots. And despite what you're hearing in the news nowadays, leaving politics aside, the FBI is one of the best law enforcement agencies in the world, and the men and women of it are, well, their focus is on doing right. They really are law and order. It's not about politics, but we'll put that aside. That Wire article in particular, though, actually details why I left the FBI, and some aspects of it are very interesting. The storyline is, is simple. Uh, within my first year in the FBI, I was sitting complaint desk, uh, which every new agent does. Got a call about a company that had been hacked into and that the hacker was extorting them. Uh, give us literally $1,000 or we are going to let the world know about the, that we've stolen all the credit cards out of your server. Now, this is 1999-2000 when e-commerce had just started to take off. Utilizing credit cards or carding was very easy to do. You could buy products from anywhere, have them shipped anywhere, and so on. Um, since then... Carding has become a lot more difficult, but this is what the media like to focus on. Oh, they're going to steal your credit card, identity theft, and so on and so on and so on. Fast forward a little bit, we're able to run a couple of undercover operations, identify the bad guys. One group happens to be out of Russia. Another group happens to be out of Ukraine. The guys out of Russia, we lure them to Seattle. We get them charged. I actually get charged by the Russian government for hacking into Russian computers, so I have to travel on a diplomatic passport. But the other guy from the Ukraine, he tries to work out some kind of deal. He's more of a social engineer, uh, a manipulator. Uh, this is Max. And what ends up happening is Max meets up with some of our agents in, the, in, the, uh, in Europe and then comes to the United States, claims that he's going to work with the agency or the bureau here. We can't get it sorted out. Eventually goes to jail. And then after a short period of time in jail for one of his intrusions, which includes packing into Western Union, he tries to make a plea deal and offers up to do some more work with, uh, with the Bureau. 
that's where my team and I step in and we devise a plan. So yes, he was leg iron to a table. Uh, what actually happened is he was actually went to jail or lived in jail. Um, we would go and get him out of jail every day. He would be leg ironed and hand ironed in a big chain down the center, just like you see on TV. We would take him to a hidden location, a secure site, and because he needed to be able to use his hands, we had a handcuff or a foot cuff around his ankle that attached him to the uh, conference table. And then I sat side by side, and we would enter these groups, and we would chase black hats, and we would buy stolen goods, and we'd go round and round on this. We ran nine months undercover, collected 400,000 stolen credit cards, thousands of other information about individuals, uh, the consensual calls, which is what the Bureau calls it, when, when one side of the conversation gives cons a consent and the other person does not. We were somewhere north of 3,000 consensual communications with bad guys. And what ended up happening is we were actually one of the best or the most well-respected fences of stolen goods on the Internet. If you stole something, the first group you can't try to bring it to was us because we always paid. We made a deal for the product. We didn't buy We didn't pay it uh, at market prices. We would get the price down. They'd always give us free stuff. And um, what's unique about this is people don't realize is that cybercrime is about the idea of hacking into the system. And that's where a lot of focus is on because it's technical and, and things of that nature. But once you get in, yes, you've, you've committed a crime of breaking into something, but you haven't stolen anything. You can't turn it into money. So it's the whole fraud scheme and the manipulation of the data and how to, how to convert that into profit that becomes a bigger deal. But without going down that path right now, Max and I do this for nine months. Then we end up getting sideways. Max wants to go home. The U.S. Attorney's Office allows him to go home. He spends approximately a year at home before he starts doing the same thing that we were doing, which is basically identifying hacked, into, uh, hacked companies and then notifying the companies of the, the hack and telling them to do something about it. However, in Max's case, he was suggesting or offering up his services to help identify the bad guys. And he found out the hack of a U.S. government contractor in the Boston area. Uh, he notified that contractor. And that contractor felt that Max was trying to extort them and steal money from them and that they, he didn't actually have the insight. While he's working that case at the same time, he's helping the FBI, namely me and, and a group out of headquarters, identify an intrusion into FBI.gov, the email service for the FBI. Very few people realized that they were actually hacked into. The bad guy in this mm -hmm. case was a Russian student at a armament College. That's a college that focuses on how to make weapons and propulsion systems to carry those weapons. We were focused on that piece of it while Max was working both ends of the deal. And because we couldn't tell anybody about the FBI.gov, the Boston AUSA started accusing me of protecting Max and wanted an investigation into it and so on. And the FBI did well by me. They tried to protect me, but the Boston AUSA thought something was an AUSA, by the way, is an assistant United States attorney. Uh, they are the ones that prosecute cases. The FBI investigates the cases, puts together a prosecutorial report, and the U.S. attorneys decide whether or not they're going to do something with it. This particular one thought that I was dirty and bad and all the other things in the sun, and I'd somehow been in collusion with Max all the way through, uh, didn't know all the details of the case, didn't realize that we had arranged to get Max to a, a place where we could extradite him and get him arrested because he was probably involved in this attack as well as others. But the result was that they, uh, they opened an investigation into me. And the Bureau, being intelligent, said, okay, Eugene, we're going to take you out of cyber and put you over to counter-terror. So for the next few years, I was in counter-terror. I worked undercover, infiltrating online terrorist groups. My cover, actually, was that of the Boston bombers before they were actually around. I was a kid from Chechnya whose family had forced me to come to the United States. Uh, I was trying to get back to my Muslim roots, and truly, I was trying to get radicalized. Went through a lot of really nice people, really good Muslim people who believed their faith to get to the really bad people. Um, but eventually that was that worked out. So I was focusing on that, on the counterterrorism pieces, but this whole thing about what happened with Max still lingered over me. And at one point in time, I was offered a promotion, move up to supervisor. I had won the promotion, and then FBI headquarters had to pull it from me because supposedly I was under criminal investigation. 
And after a period of time, I realized I just couldn't stay with the with the bureau anymore, in large part because I no longer trusted the Department of Justice. So there's a lot of other aspects of that story, and uh, a lot of cool things that we did. We we went and got $100,000 in cash from one of the local banks uh, and filmed it as if we had this kind of money, so that the bad guys would flock to us and want to collect our money. Some people didn't want money; uh, they wanted goods. So we would make purchases at places like Nordstrom's and things of that nature, and then ship them to the individuals with tags in it, so that when law enforcement was able to identify them and go over there, we were actually able to catch your, catch the people that were responsible. I got to go to the Ukraine and interview the head of a website called Carter Planet, which was the original site where a lot of this stuff took place. Uh, a lot of this online, it's an online bazaar for stolen goods. And I actually interviewed him inside of a Ukrainian prison, one of the first Americans to be allowed inside of a Ukrainian prison, which, by the way, is not, not fun and it's really scary. And I didn't get to carry my gun inside, so it was really, really scary. Like, it was, a, it was a great experience. And let me say this, though that case seems to have, like, focused all of my time, the truth is, most agents are working 10 or 12 different cases at the same time, and that was the case for me. So in the middle of all these cases, I had kidnappings, I had crimes against children, I had uh, counter-espionage cases, I had white-collar crime, fraud cases. I got the opportunity to do a lot of different things and work a lot of different crimes. It's just this one, the U.S. attorney thought incorrectly that, that I was doing bad things, and, and uniquely, even after I left, they supposedly continued the investigation, and I was cleared of everything. Uh, I did nothing, and I did nothing wrong. There was no indictment ever filed. But by that time, I'd left the Bureau and uh, had lost faith in, in the Department of Justice as it existed at that time. What an interesting story. You know, I, I know you said that lots of other cases going on, lots of other things on your plate at the time, but it just sounds so exciting. You know, They go into <laughs> detail how you brought this guy a movie and a Thanksgiving dinner. It really sounded like you guys had a partnership and something really cool that you were working towards, and then everything just hit the fan. You're really cool story. Well, let me let me explain. People don't understand the idea of a source. So a, a source, anybody who decides to turn over themselves to the FBI or or something of that nature, they're looking to benefit. They're going to tell you whatever they need to tell you in order to not go to jail or or not be penalized or whatever it may be. And you've got to understand that. You've got to recognize that they're trying to play you as much as you're utilizing them. So. As you read through the story about, I mean, we, we went to lunch, and to say we went to lunch, we went out and got lunch every day that he was there, but that didn't mean that he ever left the room other than to go to the restroom. Uh, the rest of the time, he was literally chained to a table. But all of that, and, and Max recognizes it now because he called me in 2012 and actually called me to thank me for arresting him, for making him do this work, because if he hadn't, he would be involved in drugs and he wouldn't be married and would have family. These are his words. But all of that meals and Thanksgiving and things like that, that's all a manipulation to keep him working. And some would say, well, you know, that's horrible. How could you, how could you mess with an individual that way, make him think that you're a real friendship and things like that? My job was to stop bad guys. And Max was a bad guy, and he was helping me to stop bad guys. He had knowledge that I was not able to obtain in a, in a quick and easy way. Everything was done legally. As much as it appears as a partnership and so on, the simple fact is I was in charge. He knew that all the way through. And it was in his best interest to keep doing things. And I don't mean like he wasn't going to get food or anything of that nature if he didn't do it. The simple fact was that if you've got a workforce and, they're going to, and you wanted to keep doing the work, there's got to be some perks that go along with it, some beneficial things. But friendship, no, not really. Never met my family, never met my kids, never will. Uh, probably can look him up online, to be honest. But that's not how the things work. The problem is when you're controlling, when you're manipulating a person, when you're in that world, you recognize that. You're the control agent, and you know what you're doing, and you write it all down, and you keep track of it, and people are looking over your shoulder. But when you step out and you're a third party who comes in and tries to tell people and look at what you did through a different lens, taking it out of context, taking communication out of context, you, you always get the wrong story. You don't understand it. I'll give you an example that, that fits in that. There's a lot of talk when hackers get arrested. Where are these millionaire hackers? If, if hacking costs the United States $2.4 billion or $20 billion or whatever the latest number is that just came out, where are the billionaire hackers? 
you know, where are these guys that supposedly stole all this money? And the the issue here is that that number is made up of loss, actual money stolen, but it's also the impact on systems, the loss of revenue, the amount of time people have to spend rebuilding it. But the Eastern European hackers, the, the Middle Eastern hackers, even the Far Eastern uh, Asian hackers, and to some extent, the American hackers and others. The idea is that they're doing very little work for a lot of money. And if you think about it this way, I can steal one credit card and I can make a $1,000 purchase on that credit card. And I now have a $1,000 item, whatever it may be. If I was living in Russia at the time of this, so late 90s, early 2000, the average weekly income was $100 US. So in one illegal activity, I made 10 weeks worth of salary. And I have no other way of doing it. You're like, well, they're still bad, and how dare they? Because the first question is, well, I'd probably do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now you got to go to the next step. Hackers in the Middle East, hackers in Eastern Europe, are not attacking people. They recognize that if I steal your credit card, you're not responsible for anything on it. You're not out of dime. You may be out a little bit of time, but you really are not out of, out of a single dollar. You argue and so on. The only people that are out are the banks because they're the ones who actually pay the cards. And in those countries, the banks are owned by the government. The government taxes them to get money. So basically, if I am stealing money from a bank, I'm stealing money from the government, and the government took the money from me, so it's my money. That's the mindset. That's the logical mindset that follows all the way through. Equally, if you are a guy who's helped law enforcement, U.S., Russian, whatever, stop hackers, they're not going to hate you because you have a legitimate job that gets you paid. It gets you enough money. It's understanding the context and the mindset behind individuals as to why these, why they do these things. Because people always ask me, EJ, why, why do hackers hack? Is it just because of the money? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's profitable, and that's what they're trying to go down. And if you were in their same position, if you knew that you could make 10 times your weekly salary in one action, and the likelihood of you getting caught or going to jail or there being any negative effects on anybody you know or even the person you steal it from, would you take that risk? And I'd be willing to bet that 90% of people are. Yeah, that's so interesting. Just that, yeah, as a society, we make you know this hacker sexy and we talk about the ones where people do actually make quite a bit of money and it's so interesting. And you know, in that article, you were quoted saying, he just wanted a job. This guy just wanted a job. And and yeah. now he's got a job. And you actually helped him propel him to get that job. So that's so interesting hearing from that perspective. Just a totally different mindset, what's actually going on out there and why we're getting impacted. It is so different than what I think uh, most of society feels is, is actually happening. Yeah, and, and I'm, by no means am I controlling the action. I look, it's illegal. And there are consequences for those illegal actions that you're taking. But... When you are working to identify a bigger, badder threat, something that is going to go beyond a couple of stolen credit cards or even you know, $50,000, $100,000 of loss, when we're talking about criminal activity that's going to put people's lives at risk, you've got to keep it in focus. Hacking and cybersecurity as a whole, my whole life I've seen as a game. The idea is I've got bad guys and their job is to try to get away with it. My job is, as a good guy is to catch them. And unfortunately, our game board happens to be everybody else's computer systems. But when those, when those crimes, when those criminal activities cross over into something more tangible or realistic, there was a large group within this group that Ant City targeted. And Ant City was the code name. For, for our case. It actually had another code name, but that's the one we utilized uh, for the most part. We targeted all the teams that were breaking into companies and stealing large data sets, primarily around credit cards and financial information, so that we could track where that money was going back to. Despite all the Russia's horrible blah, 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 blah that's going on right now, Russia has suffered the same fate that the United States had suffered. Very few people realized that Russia was attacked by Al-Qaeda far before 9-11 happened in the United States. And it was primarily in Chechnya, where the rebels were located. And by no means am I saying that, you know, Russia is a great nation. That their, their people have the same goals that we do. 
They want a good life for their family. They want to be safe, and they want to make sure nothing bad happens. And when we get into politics, that's a whole different story. Leave that aside. We actually tracked some of the stolen money, some of the stolen credit cards, some of the guys that we were hacking, that were hacking and selling this stuff to us to radical Chechen groups that were being supported by al-Qaeda. We tracked actually $2 million of illegal funds that were obtained through hacking, not from the government. We didn't buy any of their goods. $2 million that was, that was utilized to fund terrorism. Years, I want to say 2000, 2002, there was a bombing in a nightclub in Bali. And the individual who bombed that nightclub was sitting in, in jail awaiting his death sentence. He wrote a book. And one section of the book is, Hacker, Why Not? Or We Are Hackers, or something to that effect. And it goes into an explanation of why radical believers, not just one religion, I'm talking those who seek to use terrorism to further their cause, why they should hack systems and steal credit cards and commit fraud. Because internationally, they're very unlikely to get caught. There's little risk of that, and it's easy money. So focusing on just the credit card stuff here or there, we were looking for the bigger uses, the organized crime, the, the criminal elements, the, the, the terrorist groups that wanted to use it, the disruptions, the nation state pieces. And that all does start with simple cyber crime. How can I steal information and make money out of it? And if you don't believe that, you can you can look at how North Koreans are attacking uh, Bitcoin systems and how uh, various other government regimes have utilized cyber-based attacks to gain money or influence or control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you, know, you were really, from the, the time you took off your teaching hat, started to be molded into you know, someone that possesses a really strong security mindset, not believing anything that you see, you know, from the counterterrorism <laughs> to, of course, the cyber side. So, you know, what did this experience do to propel your career into cybersecurity? Unique we'd have this conversation today because last night I sat at a college prep meeting with my 15-year-old as he's getting ready to figure out which college he wants to go to. And he was talking about, well, what major should I take? And he received something in the mail about national security. And I was like, well, there's not really a national security major. And he's like, yeah, but I want to do these things to help this. And I said, well, it's a bunch of different pieces of information. And I always get asked the same question. What do I need to take in order to get into a cyber crime or cybersecurity field? What, what, what goes behind it? And the, the idea is this. There currently are no majors in, in cybersecurity. And you can go out and look. There's master's degrees that you can get in cybersecurity, but there are no majors that I can find in cybersecurity. I've been trying to find a place I'd love to teach what I know with regards to that. Knowing the technical is one piece, okay? Knowing the human element of it is the other piece, and that's what so many people forget. Yes, you can be fantastic at building firewalls and configuring networks and setting up architecture and configuring various different systems to do different things, to track and monitor and so on but you forget the human element. And the human element is the key. So though I was a cybercrime expert, or a better word is a cybercrime professional, and I studied that and I looked at it and I understood how the bad guys were getting in, the real benefit of working with the FBI, the real benefit of working those crimes and investigations and so on, was learning to talk with people, engage people and understand them, the psychology behind it. The experiences that you bring to the table working on equipment and so on cannot be limited to just hardware and software. If you want to work in this space, if you want to be a cybersecurity professional, a privacy professional, you have to understand the human element of this. You have to understand their psychology, their mentality, their motivation. You have to be able to write and convey thoughts clearly in a way that not just you understand, but that everybody else understands. You have to be a translator from geek to human and back. Those are the things that came into play. So working as a teacher, working as an FBI agent, between the time of teaching and joining the FBI, my job was to write user manuals for a software program that tracked aircraft maintenance. 
and you had to write it in such a way that everybody could understand it because it was written by a bunch of techies. So I had to break that down because it was going to be handled by a bunch of uh, wrench turners and, and fighter jobs who didn't necessarily know all the technical terms at the time. That's my recommendation. That's my, my luck that came into it as being this kind of jack of all trades, understanding a little bit of everything, um, because that's, that's how cybersecurity works at this point in time. Um, there is no aspect of life nowadays that does not have a cyber element. Absolutely. Um, if you think about it, I mean, there's nothing that you do that doesn't either record your information, track you in some way, shape, or form, or you utilize information or technology to obtain information. My, my 11-year-old daughter goes, well, what about cooking? And I said, did you just look up that recipe on your iPad? Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> That's perfect. What do you think they saw in you that made them want to you know, bring you on as an agent and have you focus on cybersecurity? You know what? I wish I knew. Uh, <laughs> you know, look, I thought, I, I thought joining the FBI, you know, everybody was going to be long-term cops or military background things. When I got to the academy, there was 40 people in my class. In my class, there was a former oil executive. There was a healthcare worker. There was a social worker. There was a former professional baseball player. There were lawyers and accountants and doctorates of different subjects and so on. And the simple fact, as I looked at it and I realized and we, we discussed it, the simple fact is that in order to be an investigator, you have to be able to talk with people. You also have to be able to do research and understand what it is that you're looking at. Now, recognize you've got to have a degree and all these other things that go with it, but you have to be able to work alone, find information, get through that information, and then attach that information to the facts or the evidence or, or the situation that you're, you're looking at. And oftentimes, believe it or not, folks, the evidence that you are obtaining is intended to try to prove innocence as much as it is to try to prove guilt. Agents are looking to, or investigators are looking to collect all information to eliminate individuals as much as focus on individuals. So to your original question, what did the FBI see in me that they, they decided to let me do this? Probably the fact that I like to talk and I can listen and that I can then take the information that I put it into a coherent thought on paper so that we can follow that path down the way. It didn't matter that I had a degree in history and a minor in biology. It didn't matter that I had been a tech guy writing user manuals for software. None of that really mattered in the long term. Yeah, it's interesting, but 99% of the agents that I have met are straight out people that can talk and people that can listen and that have a level of, of critical thinking that others simply don't have. And that's that. I'll say there is one other aspect of that puts you in that category. Is you're, you've got something wrong in your brain and that you're willing to run into the fight instead of going away from it. So that, that is a, there's definitely a factor there. Uh, uh, FBI agents, actually all law enforcement, despite what you see on TV, this idea of, oh, I want to be the first in the door and kick down the door and things of that nature. FBI agents are not that way. Uh, I'll be honest. You know, we're, you line up. We're going to go do a raid on somebody's house. The SWAT team is not with you because those guys are quite simply badasses, guys and gals. But it's you and your, your squad mates, and there's 10 of you, and you're like, okay, we all know how to do this. Who wants to go in first? And nobody raises their hand. I'm like, yeah, that's stupid. I'm not going to go sh get shot or get a dog barking or whatever. And, you know, we kind of draw straws. But as soon as you line up, we've got each other's back and we're going to protect each other. But the simple fact is, we're not gung-ho stupid, but we also recognize that we swore an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, to defend the U.S. against all enemies, foreign or domestic, and we're going to do that job. And, you know, we're going to run to the risk. We're going to run to the threat. We're going to go and try to stop it and protect others who, so that they can run away from it. You don't have a lot of people out there doing that. You've got law enforcement, you've got the military, and you've got firefighters. That's pretty much it. Those are the people that are, are willing to put their lives on the line to protect other people. And we should give them some respect. Um, and, you know, walk, walk, walk a mile in their shoes one day. And honestly, see how many times 
if you can keep yourself from peeing yourself when you walk into some situation and there's a gun pointing at your head or something of that nature. Those men and women are out there doing that, and they and they they're fighting to come home, but they're fighting to save you. So yep. sorry, that's my get on the soapbox type of moment, but. <laughs> Yeah, so well, I go yeah. and then I'll run in, but the other side of it, I, I can talk to people. So how about that? Sure, sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's that's so insightful. That's so interesting. Yeah. You got to thank you for your your service. That's that's phenomenal. So you know, one thing you mentioned previously when you're talking about you know, your 15 year old is getting ready for college is lack of programs at the undergraduate level, you know, for cybersecurity. What do you think would happen if there were to be you know, dedicated either trade school, even associates or bachelor's program for cybersecurity specifically? Do you, first off, do you think that it would be attractive to potential students? And you know, secondly, what do you think that it would, the impact would be to the you know, almighty cybersecurity talent gap? <laughs> well, let me, let, let me make a reference that goes back. Before we knew how to melt, melt metal, we didn't have any forges, and we didn't have any welders, and we didn't have any metal buildings, okay? Mm-hmm. Though we have cyber, we have technology, we have computers. And, and let's, let's define this now. Cyber is a marketing term, okay? Cyber means nothing. If you ask somebody what cyber means, nobody can give you a real definition. But for our sake, for this conversation, we're going to talk about cyber as everything that connects to a computer and integrates with a computer or utilizes a computer. Now that's a huge piece of the world, okay? Cybersecurity is basically the security of the information that is being transmitted through technology, okay? Phone, internet, computers, IoT, um, you know, your washing machine, whatever it may be. And also that information that's stored in a technological form, not in a paper form, okay? When you recognize that and they talk about a shortage of cybersecurity professionals, the simple fact is that there is no one-size-fits-all. There are some basic understandings, there are some basic concepts that a cybersecurity professional needs to understand. One, how bad guys are getting in, bad gals, are getting into systems. And two, what they're trying to do after they get into the systems. So I'm going to step back for a second. Let me, let me restate that. There are two basics to cyber attacks. It's either to gain access or it's to disrupt access. That's it. That's a simple fact. I want to gain access to a computer so I can steal the information from it, take the information. Or I want to disrupt access from a computer so it shuts down or it stops other people from doing stuff shutting down gas pumps, shutting down the electric grid, shutting down anti-aircraft missiles, or gaining access so I can see where the anti-aircraft missiles are, where the gas pumps are, where the electric grid is. If we start with that, that idea, I'll go back to your question of if we had formalized programs that were teaching this, cybercrime is really only about 18 years old. It's still a teenager. It is a direct result of the e-commerce explosion in the late 90s, early 2000s, because there was an opportunity to make money because there was information, easy information, that could immediately be converted into money. Now, since then, the market has matured. Uh, What I mean by that is no longer am I just stealing credit cards and utilizing them to buy goods online and then shipping in different places. Every piece of information now has a value, you just gotta find the right buyer. So there's a maturity to that market. It's grown up in terms of where the information is going to be going to be sold. But the simple basic facts of how I get in and what I steal are still the same as it was when it first started. Over those 18 years, intellectually people that did not grow up with this stuff, did not understand this stuff, simply can't teach that stuff. Now, I'm 48 years old. If you think about your college professors, they're about my age, right? Well, sure. in my 48 years, <laughs> in my 48 years, I've really dealt with tech a lot. So my mindset has been on this. But there's a lot of other people that are my same age that never dealt with it. They, they were never involved in it and so on. So the people that are your professors in colleges right now, most of them never dealt with this. Therefore, they can't teach you about it. Now that's shifting, and we're starting to see this shift. 
And there was also a very large time frame in there, pretty much almost all of 2000 through 2010. People were talking about, you don't go to college for, for a computer degree. They don't teach me anything I need to know. They just don't. And, and if you think about it, most of your entrepreneurs that are in, te in tech space at this point in time, many of them did not get a degree or did not go to college. Most of them dropped out. Um, yeah. Why? Because Very there true. simply wasn't people to teach this. Uh, we're getting to that point. Now that it's maturing, now that it's growing, now that we have more people understanding it and its importance, now that it impacts more life, we will definitely start seeing programs created to teach this stuff at a bachelor's degree level. Then your specializations will come out in your master's degrees. Protecting SCADA systems will be a master's degree level type of course, whereas basic understanding of network security and, and uh, information security as a whole will be a bachelor's level uh, course. As that occurs, that will take a large chunk out of the talent gap that exists out there in the world at this point in time. But as tech continues to evolve, as it starts flowing into more aspects of our life, as artificial intelligence is being utilized, as self-driving cars are coming into, into play, as drones are being created and utilized, it's virtually impossible for us to completely close that talent gap. We are behind in the education piece, and that learning curve is almost insurmountable and will continue to be that way for probably the next 20 years. Tech is moving too fast for education to catch up. We'll absolutely get closer. The day that learning curve will be gone is the day that you will be learning information security in elementary school and not in a postgraduate uh, post class or for, through the School of Hard Knocks. Yeah, makes such a good point there. Things are moving so quickly, you know, the different threats and, and way of uh, yeah, accessing this information is ever-changing and ever-growing. So it's almost like a dog chasing their tail. Yeah, and, and I don't want people to be unhappy with this or, or freak out, oh, my God, what, what should we do? The simple fact is this. Information security being taught is around the ideas of how to secure equipment, how to secure the way that data is being utilized once it's already been provided, okay? If you want to address information security now, if we want to stop the criminal activity associated with it or to minimize that criminal activity and understand Look, it's never going to end. There is no way in the world to stop cyber attacks 100%. Just accept that. It's like saying that mugging has stopped. Right? <laughs> mugging people have been around forever. Conning people has been around forever. Cybercrime will be around forever. It'll be 3,085 and we will still have cyber-related criminal activity. Just yep. accept that. Okay? But we can minimize it. And the way we, people listening to this podcast, we as the general public, even if you're not in information security, is by protecting your data yourself. Thinking, why the heck am I sharing this information with Facebook? Why the heck do they need this? Why am I filling out my real name on, for this app or taking a real picture of myself for this or allowing advertisers to collect information about myself? Because... Your data is protected if it's not out there because only you know it then. Our talent gap in this space, our lack of professionals who understand this space, is not a bad thing in that it's going to, the world is going to be ruined forever. There are some really, really smart people, and there's a lot of people whose minds just work this way and understand how to make ones and zeros get up and dance and turn into, I don't know, whatever thing they can come up with in their mind. I'm not one of them, by the way. But there are those people out there. Um, mm -hmm. I'd ask you, how many, how many rocket scientists are there in the world? How many neurosurgeons are there in the world? It's a specialization. It will become a specialization. Uh, it will be a degree-based program, and people will come out with a degree in it, and they will, they will secure it up. We'll be able to focus and specialize even further once that starts to occur. Who's going to hack an aircraft? Well, we'll actually have experts who know how to, how to secure aircraft, and they'll instruct people how to do that because they specialized in it at that point in time. We're, we're going to get there. We are absolutely going to get there. Uh, and in the short run, it's, uh, it's on us as people to stop giving up our information, stop giving it away for free. Yep, absolutely. It 
sounds a little bit morbid, but at the same time, it uh, <laughs> uh, shows how important it is and, and how long the profession is going to be around. Um, so that's that's exciting yeah. on the, the flip side. Well, let's so, try it this way. Instead of being morbid, instead of being morbid, think of it this way. If you actually understand it, then you can actually develop a way to, to deal with it. And morbid or, or fatalistic is because you don't understand why it's happening in the first place, so you just give up and say, it's not, you know, oh, I'm dead. It's gonna, it's, there's, no, there's no solution. Simple sure. fact is there is a solution. And by educating yourself, by listening to podcasts like this, by talking about these types of things, there is an education out there. And that you being interested, me being interested, the people listening to this being interested starts a groundswell. And guess what? what? That then forces things to happen a lot better. So in my opinion, it's actually really, really cool. The fact that my 15-year-old wants to go into this field tells me this is going to be a good thing. And it is, it is a good thing. It's moving forward. So we should be positive rather than going, oh, my God, the world's coming to an end. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. You've been in charge of establishing a InfoSec cybersecurity practice at a company that yep. has historically been focused on you know, more that physical or personnel uh, your security. It definitely raises some questions. So why have you gone ahead and decided to undertake this challenge and, and what are some of the crossovers that make it you know such a a reasonable maneuver I guess from going from that personnel to you know, more information security we have for so long focused on securing information when it's been given to somebody else enterprise security at a company or things of that nature has been a has been a massive focus and let's be honest it hasn't worked we hear every day about breaches of information all the way through. Just last year, we had Equifax, 143 million people's information taken. And companies are doing what they can to protect the information. But the simple fact is security is not a concept that has to be handled by somebody else. Do you lock your door at night? Do you lock your car when you park it at a parking lot? Do you make sure that things are secure for your personal life? And if the answer to that is yes, then you should be doing the same thing in your cyber life. So this transition, though Gavin Becker and Associates, we've handled physical security for a very, very long time. And almost 40 years that Gavin Becker and Associates has been around doing this work. And as the bad guys shift the way they, they seek to attack individuals, the way you secure individuals has to shift as well. It used to be that inappropriate pursuers or stalkers would show up at your house or dig through your garbage or try to get pictures of you at events that you're attending and so on. And to some extent, they still do that. But now, 90% of it is all done online. It's monitoring people online. It's looking at people online. It's tracking them with regards to the information that you or these people are readily sharing. And People don't realize it, but if I can get an email from you, I can get your IP address. If I can get your IP address, I can run a search back and try to figure out exactly where you're at. And I can utilize programs like Metasploit and Nessus and so on remotely to run attacks on that IP address and identify what systems you may have in your house. If I can identify what systems you have in your house, I may be able to find a vulnerability. Maybe your thermostat has a hard-coded password into it. May and actually has a, a listening device. Maybe your refrigerator has a camera on the inside that shows you what food is inside. Guess what? When that opens up, I have a camera view of your living room or your kitchen or wherever that door opens to. We've moved from a, a highly physical focus to in terms of personal security to also an online focus in person, uh, personal security. And that's why we're doing it. The other side of it is look at around your house. Look at how many devices are connected to the Internet and ask yourself, do you know how that's done? Do you know who configured that, who set that up? That guy or gal from the cable company that set that up, how do you know they don't have the password? Heck, it's on the side of your modem. Huh. Your Wi-Fi password is literally printed on the side of your modem. And nine times out of ten, they're the ones who installed it. They're the ones who went to each one of your devices and typed that in for you so that you could log in. We have moved what was once an enterprise-only level type of technology into our personal space, and we got nobody out there securing it for us. We got nobody out there teaching us how to secure it. My clients or, or our company's clients, they're realizing quite simply, hey, 
I, I need to understand this. Kevin DeFecker is probably associated more with celebrities than anything else, but a large, a very large portion of our business is, you know, captains of industry and women who are running the show. They're not stupid people. They recognize, ooh, that's something I didn't think about. That's really why this shift is occurring. Personal security, providing an opportunity to help you to understand how that PS4 connects up and what's actually happening behind there. How that modem and router that's sitting in your your basement in that little metal ca- cabinet that some guy named Fred came in and installed that you have no idea who he really was, what they can actually do. That's what we're here to help people out with, is help them understand it. And the simple fact is, once you learn it and you're willing to take the time to actually do something about it, you know, you can do all of this yourself for those people who who can't or don't have the time to do it themselves. And, of course, you're going to pay people to go and do it. You can learn how to do the plumbing in your house yourself, right? You know how it works, and you know that you call a plumber when leaks occur because you can see a leak, right? Water's spewing out all over the floor or whatever. How about when your, your computer system is, has spewed a leak and it's, it's sharing your data all over the place? Who are you going to call? God, that sounds horrible, but marketing <laughs> back to old Ghostbusters days. <laughs> what, what are you going to do when you, you can't see it? Yeah. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a, it's a realization. Let me sidestep for a second on something. And, um, you know, net neutrality is a big deal, and everybody's talking about it and it being rolled back and, and so on. But the simple fact is access to the Internet is almost, almost a utility, like electricity or water in, in, in your home. My kids used to argue with me all the time, but the U.N. has stated that Internet access is a human right, and which they did. And I said, yes, when you live in my house and I can take away that right. But the simple fact is your use of the Internet is a utility. And you expect it to be there and you expect all that type of stuff. Um, And to that same extent, your gas, your electricity, your water coming into your house, your Internet coming into your house. You have professionals that you call for all of those things except for that last one. We're somehow expected to fix it ourselves, to address it ourselves. and let's be honest, most of us don't know how. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I'm a handy guy and I can build most stuff, but as soon as it gets to electric, I call an electrician because it will kill me if I do it wrong. Yep. Um, we, have to, we have to start realizing that. We have to start focusing and addressing it that way. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. There really is some yeah. significant parallels from, from one to the other. So important, yeah. especially you know, those important people that you guys are working with. Don't have the time, don't have the effort, don't have the desire maybe to, to do it. And Probably the uh, yeah, the desire. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hop into overrated, underrated. So I got three good ones for you. I've been thinking about these for you know, a little bit of time. First one stems okay. from influencers on LinkedIn. I've been seeing this repeatedly to start 2018 off, and I'm really interested to hear what you think. Overrated or underrated, going back to the basics as an overarching security solution? Hmm. I am a proponent of education. From that perspective, I say that we should all go back to the basics. 100% go back to the basics and start there and build forward from that. We rely way, way too much on third parties telling us that I know how to fix it for you and I'm going to put this thing in and we don't have the basic knowledge of what they're even talking about. I guess the claim here would be that we have underrated the idea of going back to the basics. We need to move that up. It needs to get to the, to the forefront. It needs to be seen as a very, very important aspect of life and we just simply aren't doing it. Okay, great. So piggybacking off of that, implementing data-driven solutions, AIs, and other very advanced technologies. So the exact opposite of going back to the basics. (laughs) Now, is that overrated or underrated? (laughs) Let me, let's start with this. AI, artificial intelligence, as it is explained today, used to be called data mining, but nobody understood that either, okay? Uh Look, artificial intelligence is overrated in 90% of what it is being applied to. We do not need it in certain aspects. Now, if you are building a spacecraft and you are going to travel to Mars, 
and you need to make computations faster than a human can do, absolutely we need artificial intelligence to help you do that, okay? But we've made it this far without some machine telling us what to do and applying information or uh, an artificial intelligence to every idea, every thought, every business is just way, way outside the realm of being human. And if you look at it, most of the people that are actually paying for it or building these types of stuff are already warning against the over-dependence on artificial intelligence. There is a legitimate fear of a Skynet-type environment being created when we give computers the ability to control or to think everything through because, quite simply, logic is not always the answer. I mean, we're not, we're not a world of Vulcans. This isn't Dr. Spock or whatever the new... Vulcan character is on whatever new Star Trek show that's come out. Logic is one piece of, of uh, decision making, but emotional uh, evaluation is also very much important. And allowing a a system that does not involve emotion is simply it's not a world I want to live in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting take there. Uh, so this last one before we let you go stems, of course, off of your experience with Max. Black hats moving into enterprise mm -hmm. roles. Is that overrated or underrated? Ooh, can I have a metal, metal thing kind of rated? <laughs> um, Properly rated? <laughs> Properly rated? Look, I would have been considered a black hat before, before hacking was illegal. All right? I, I, my first computer was a Commodore 64. Uh, I was 12 years old. The, the criminal laws about hacking had not been written at that point in time, and I was able to access systems through literally a dial-up modem that I had to put my phone on and went beep, 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 and things of that nature, okay? Everybody deserves a second chance. The downside is if you've been black hat, you know how to manipulate systems and turn things around and, and make them get up and dance and do things. And if you move into an enterprise-based system, 99% of the time there's a set of rules and uh, regulations and configurations that have to be followed that you will not agree with. It's just the way it is. So it's really properly rated as a concern because it really comes down to the individual, each individual that's doing it. But I'll say this, look, if they're 16, 17 years old, uh, I mean, even up to 22, 23, uh, 25, and they were, they were playing around with black hat type stuff, I liken it to smoking pot in the 70s when they told you you couldn't do it because it was illegal, all right? They, they're utilizing their skill set to do something. They did not do it to intentionally be harmful or to cause problems for individuals. And as they've grown up, they've probably realized, holy crud, look at how bad things were. You know, what, what was I thinking? You know, what did I do? So I'm going with rated. Not over, not under, but rated. <laughs> you know, a, a, a level, a grain of salt per individual rather than lumping everybody in the, in the same group. Sure. Sure. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well, that's great. Uh, do appreciate your time. Thanks so much, EJ. Thank you. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.